Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the program, I'll be talking to British writer Peter Waller, who's written a book on the tramways of Hong Kong, published by Blacksmith Books, which has a lovely array of historic photos of trams from the tram line's founding in 1904 onwards. The photos are by a variety of photographers, all part of the online transport archive. I'll be talking to Peter Waller later in the program. Tragically, we witnessed earlier this month a fire that devastated the roof and spire of the iconic Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. There's been a sense of global mourning for this heritage site that means so much to France and yet also to those who live outside the country. This week, I called David Townsend, who's based in Singapore and is the principal fire and explosion investigator with Andrew Moore and Associates to talk about Notre Dame and how to protect heritage buildings from fire. The first part of the interview is our phone conversation in the wake of the fire, and the rest of the interview is from a previous walk-around we had when David Townsend made an earlier trip to Hong Kong. There clearly was not effective prevention to the building, and any fire that results in such catastrophic damage, if it is found to be accidental, and I'll make that very clear, then that is what all reasonable precautions and risk assessments are aimed at mitigating the effects of accidental fire. So if there is a uh, substantial loss, it's a clear indicator that there's been something amiss with the fire precautions or fire safety regime. So what can we do with buildings like that? You say you've got a lot of um, stone, but then you've got the sort of high up in the rafters, you've got this old timber. Um, and this is going to be a problem, you know, throughout Western Europe. <laughs> there's many buildings yeah. of that type that also, I mean, much more recently, but there, there's also in Hong Kong uh, certain ones that would fit that type with, with wood content. I mean, do you then coat the, I mean, do you, how do you, do you suspend people up there to, to coat the wood? There are many products that would be devised or invented, and, but one of the difficulties or perceived difficulties with fixed installations that is automatic and the best example and it's well over 130 years old 100 or more years old is fire sprinklers now the the problem there is so much of the business and particularly heritage buildings have great resistance to installations of that kind it is destructive to install. It is obtrusive. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy to hide it, particularly, of course, in heritage buildings. It doesn't look attractive. And, and the, the other thing also is people worry about, and most particularly, is the potential for unnecessary water damage. And this seems to obsess some people in steering away from sprinklers. They worry about that aspect. But of course, also the almost virtually fail-safe technology. There are other developments with this, and a good example in uh, recent years is uh, water mist systems, which is less disruptive uh, in terms of water damage, is, is at least equally effective, certainly less water damage. And how does the water mist work? I mean, how would you erect it? It's through fixed pipe work. It needs to be controlled and regulated and actuated by uh, heat actuation. If it's actuated only by smoke, then that's a severe risk of, of uh, a lot of accidental uh, false alarms and damage as a result. Fire detection is also more advanced these days, but it's all a matter of cost. So unfortunately with heritage buildings, the cost is in, out of the public purse. And that puts extreme limitations 
on what many custodians would like to have installed but uh, are unable to do so because of financial problems. Certainly that applies in church buildings, I'm absolutely certain. I know we know Notre Dame has been struggling for, for years to uh, secure funding for the stonework. The risk, of course, is that these buildings cannot be effectively fought by public service fire brigades because the access is impossible from inside and outside. There are devices and there's technology to assist firefighters over the years. For, for example, in roof firefighting, you can get a water lance system to get into a roof, but if you can't access, if you cannot access the external of the roof, then that equipment is irrelevant. And all fires, almost without exception, have to be fought ultimately from the inside. And with such buildings, the access for fire service is uh, extremely restrictive and you cannot, because of the nature of them, heritage buildings, start installing uh, greater, better access just for firefighting. So the reliance has to be on uh, fixed installations and good maintenance of those of those systems. You were saying about pressure on the public purse. Do yeah. you feel that if uh, countries want to save their national heritage then they need to get realistic about how much it costs? Well, that's easier said than done. Heritage buildings, certainly, uh, I would support wholeheartedly that as much effort and uh, resources as possible should be invested in them. Arguably, many of them are world heritage as mm. Stated about uh, Notre Dame Paris, and I, I do make that uh, differential. There are many Notre Dame churches throughout uh, the world. Uh, I actually witnessed the one in Ho Chi Minh uh, last week that actually has scaffolding on, all over the roofing right this moment. And this is the problem with uh, many buildings, or well, many buildings and structures generally. But again, heritage buildings, and there is such a history of it. I'm not uh, making any comment on cause of fire at the moment, mm, but mm. when there are refurbishment contractors on site in any building, it must trigger a review of the risk assessment. A risk assessment of any building or property should be considered to be dynamic. It must be reviewed at any time there is any change to the use or contents of, uh, of that building and contractors on site will absolutely, uh, almost inevitably, result in some vulnerability in terms of fire safety. That has to be assessed and the, that vulnerability must be compensated for. So either temporary fixed installations, increased patrols, increased detection systems, um, CCTV, or there are many things that can be instigated. Now I note Notre Dame, Paris, uh, of course, uh, four different contractors, different purposes, different reasons. At least one has had a presence there, only left property one hour before the incident was uh, reported. That's well within the realms of potential fire origin. Fires can originate long, long before they're actually first discovered. And uh, a lot of that depends on the nature of the combustibles and the ignition source. Now, granite is a key fabric used in many heritage buildings in Hong Kong. That would often obviously be coupled with timber. What are the challenges in Hong Kong, do you think, for fire safety? 
Uh, the challenge is with uh, stone, if it's, if it's the true structure of the building in any part, stone is wonderful uh, material. It's not entirely wonderful for the firefighters. If there are stone staircases, they can collapse without warning. But that's another issue. But the other thing with stone, if you can get a lot of aesthetic stone, so you'll get stone slabs that are used, again, to cover up unattractive services and create voids. Albeit what's behind often is uh, maybe less flammable, it's still creating a void for the spread of heat and smoke. But stone generally is a good substance because it is non-combustible. Yeah, we're standing here by the former Legislative Council building, now the Court of Final Appeal, and of course started off as a Supreme Court when it was constructed just after 1912. So I mean, it's sturdy as anything. Then there's St. John's. These are all good, sturdy granite buildings, but they also have the wood element. Now, churches also in, in uh, plenty of those in Britain. Um, how do you set about when you look at a church? What would you want to see there in terms of fire safety? Uh, the key thing with church uh, buildings, there's a lot of uh, aged timber that tends to become a little bit more easy to sustain fire because it's uh, dried and becomes brittle and a little bit frayed, let's say. But there are commercially available treatments that will give a fire retardant. Uh, but again, the key thing is the prevention now. This is, this is where the reduction or elimination of the risk is a key thing because if you have a fire once it gets into the roof of a church that's a difficult fire to fight from the inside let alone from the outside all fires must be fought from the inside if you're fighting a fire from the outside that really is a lost cause to a great degree when we look at heritage buildings now both in in hong kong and london i mean when you've got things like the Tower of London or, you know, let's go to Stratford-on-Avon and you've got uh, William Shakespeare's wife's house. These were often timber structures or stone. You don't want to affect the integrity. So how do you set about ensuring that modern safety standards are present, but you still maintain the heritage of a building in theory? In theory, it's still the same principle. You look at the risks and you look at the hazards and you eliminate or reduce the risks and with those risks that are left you mitigate for those risks so you reduce uh, or control the spread of fire you ensure that you've got early warning of fire and that the response to fire is suitable and sufficient you say that fire safety codes here are, are pretty stringent they're very good here and in fact there are some elements of of the codes that are although prescriptive that's not a particularly bad thing um, they are uh, comprehensive and, and in fact they do include even uh, specifically references to prevention of spread of fire and control and responsibility by the owners and occupiers so that's really quite a, a big plus point for the ordinance here now a challenge for firefighters is when say if you take a heritage building and it changes its use it, you might put in a false ceiling what happens then it's the one of the many predominant issues with heritage buildings uh, because of change of use is uh, the creation uh, unavoidably of uh, hidden voids uh, voids are areas uh, such as maybe loft spaces or spaces behind aesthetic boarding and cladding internal and external that are used to make a place look better or even perform better in terms of its energy efficiency. But these 
will create uh, areas where a fire can spread unknown, unchecked and unseen until the effect of that fire is too severe. These voids, what do you suggest? That you just put a fire alarm in there, a detector of some sort? Ideally, you instigate the same procedure, same principles over the inside, which we call, refer to compartmentation. It's dividing a building into fire-tight cells. And, and if that can be done with voids, then yes, they should be done. But again, with heritage building, that's easier said than done. So when you've got any situation that's not ideal, you look for compensatory factors and be reminding and remembering again that it's the fabric of the building with heritage that's also vitally important. In what way? Because we're looking to preserve the building. Fire ordnance and codes is generally designed to save or, pre or preserve life. Uh, but with heritage building, we want the building to be preserved so we're looking at uh, installing extra protection and including fire detection in the voids because a fire can develop in a void, say behind an electrical socket or again on a junction box that's de uh, become defective due to ingress of water. It will be undetected otherwise until it reaches an occupied area. Now you've said yourself that when you've gone in as a firefighter you've had situations where you can feel the heat but you can't see the fire. Yes and it's uh, it, that's a scary thing, uh, one of the many scary things for firefighters. A firefighter wants to see the flame. Uh, when you know the flame, where the flame is, you know where your fire is, you know your safety points. If you're not seeing the fire, if all you're doing is chasing the heat, then yeah, there's extra precautions there for yourselves and we're aware of that and we'll take take that but feeling the heat is only going to take you to the area to the room or the floor of origin you've now got to find out where that heat is coming from and you can't just simply go breaking into ceilings and walls looking for it with modern firefighting we have thermal imaging uh, cameras uh, available on first line so that helps a great deal if you take a heritage building and say, right, we're now going to put it to multiple use, as is the case, say, for the, with the reconstructed Murray building over in Stanley, you don't have, you know, you're not sitting there in a panic about what could go wrong. Uh, absolutely not, no. I think uh, it does present uh, other challenges, of course. There in many heritage buildings you cannot easily install, uh, for example, sprinklers. Uh, it's not so easy in many areas or places to install even smoke detection that is uh, that doesn't why look where well, I'm saying that doesn't look oh, so people are worried about aesthetics yes the aesthetics of uh, fire safety can uh, be uh, a little bit disturbing but that's just there's a lot of assumptions made it's not that difficult to um, have fire safety provisions hidden from sight for example sprinklers now are frequently uh, drop-down sprinklers. If you go to many modern buildings, you won't see the sprinkler heads. You'll see just a little white disc in the ceiling. But when the sprinkler operates, that will drop down and reveal a sprinkler. You can also have smoke detection system that is not this ugly white device sitting in the middle of the ceiling. There are ways to, uh, to hide uh, such things, but, but these, it these items still function well if they're designed well. The, the, the culture or the heritage is understood and respected. Do you, do you think that there would be a market though for like Tudor look smoke detectors or Victorian chandelier smoke detectors? 
if you could if you could uh design such a thing and get a market for it yeah maybe so but i don't think that's really coming immediately my thanks to david townsend principal fire and explosion investigator with andrew moore and associates in singapore and on to my second interview with writer Peter Waller, who's based in England and has recently produced the book The Tramways of Hong Kong, A History in Pictures. It's a lovely book published by local publisher Blacksmith Books, showing tram photos throughout the decades. I grew up in the West Riding of Yorkshire, where we didn't have trams when I was a kid, but we had trolleybuses. And I used to sit and have a very boring lessons at school, watching trolleybuses go past. And from that, I developed an interest. And my father had been interested in trams before me, but he had never forced me to become interested. But as I grew older, he took me around various places in the British Isles that had trams and various places overseas that had trams. And I was then able to convert that interest into, into a career in transport publishing. And I'm still involved with that. And I've been very fortunate enough to be able to convert, say, a hobby into a, a career and, and then be able to write books on the subject, on British tramways and on European tramways, and now, obviously, Hong Kong as well. Yes, I've got in front of me the tramways of Hong Kong, a history in pictures. And it really is lovely. I mean, you've got um, pictures really going back since pretty much the start of the tramway in well, 1904. Absolutely, absolutely yes. The, the very, very early days when the technology was... Well, almost brand new. Hong Kong was one of the earliest places in the Far East to have tramways. And it's nice to see that sort of almost 120 years on, they're still thriving, still providing a vital part of public transport service in, in the community. So what's your connection to Hong Kong? My connection to Hong Kong goes back to the early 1990s when my mother, who'd been a teacher out in Bradford, spent four years teaching in the People's Republic, initially at Wuhu and then in Kuoming. And during that period, she had a, a serious illness, was moved to Hong Kong for medical treatment, made contact with the British Council while she was out there. And when she finished in China in 1990, she was offered a position with the British Council to be involved in the creation of teaching courses for English students in Hong Kong. And, and I was actually involved with the local radio station in, in producing broadcasts for uh, people learning English. She was out there. It was an ideal opportunity for me to go and visit her. I'd never, I'd never, I'd never flown before going out to Hong Kong in 1992. And I just loved the place. I just loved the whole atmosphere, the vibrancy, the colour, and the opportunity to travel on one of the few places in the world, but at that stage, the, virtually the only place in the world to still have the traditional double-deck trams. Indeed. Uh, what's your, uh, what was your mum's name? Uh, Joan Waller. She worked with the British Council for three, four years and wrote a number of educational guides, textbooks linked into an RTHK English language programme series. Yeah, I agree with you that in terms of trams, I mean, uh, Hong Kong's maintained its trams. They used to be seafront, of course, with reclamation. They're now a bit more inland, but Manchester and so many places got rid of their trams, didn't they? Well, virtually everywhere in Britain did. The only place in Britain to retain trams from the 1960s was Blackpool. And as the years have gone on, people have realised actually what a fundamentally important and useful means of transport tramways are. Because paradoxically, one of the reasons for getting rid of the trams in Britain was that they were perceived to have caused congestion. If cars and buses and lorries wanted to get past, they couldn't very easily do so. And so trams were perceived as causing traffic jams. What obviously happened is that over the years they've realised that trams, because they do run on a predetermined route, are more easily identifiable and can carry vast numbers of people quickly, efficiently and, and cheaply and in a very environmentally friendly way because obviously they're, they're powered by electricity. 
which means there's no pollution at the point of delivery of the service, which means you get cleaner air, diesel buses emit fumes, cars emit fumes, but a tram cannot emit fumes when actually providing the service. When I'm looking through your book here, you've got some fantastic images that really show the development of Hong Kong, the infrastructure in terms of, we've got in Causeway Bay, for example, bits of track and interchange. Also, you know, so, so many of these photographs are black and white, some or others are colour, and also not just the development of the, the trams over time, but you've also got the buses and the cars and everything else that goes around with those street scenes. Absolutely. I think the beauty of street photography is that it does give you a sense of continuity and change. In other words, there are buildings that are there, have been there for many, many years, but there are also buildings that have disappeared in several cases, in several generations. You've gone first, second, third buildings on the same site in 100 years. The fashions have changed, the cars have changed, the buses have changed. Everything's got slightly busier and the buildings have got much taller. And just as, if you like, an exercise in pure nostalgia, that it is possible through photography to go back and look at street scenes that are still within living memory but are so radically different to what they look like today. Yeah, you really go through the decades here. There's even a chance to see some of the pedestrian fashion through the years. Some very interesting ones that I'm looking at at the moment through the 1950s. Now, a lot of these photographs, or all of these photographs, I, I don't know, I haven't checked each individual one, but it says the Online Transport Archive. What's that? The, the Online Transport Archive is a British registered charity in which I'm very heavily involved, which offers homes to otherwise homeless photographic collections, primarily taken by railway enthusiasts, tramway enthusiasts, bus enthusiasts. Because there's, a, there's often a danger that none of us like to think of our own mortality, but we expend a great deal of time collecting things, photographing things, and we never actually make provision necessarily as to what's going to happen to them when they're no, no longer around. And so often these sorts of things just get disposed of landfill sites burnt and so that the online transport archive is a charity that offers a home and, and a secure future for this type of material and it's through the reproduction of the photographs and the payments that the images generate that we keep the charity going oh that's a great idea so this can be all different forms of transport absolutely aviation shipping railways cars motorbikes traction engines, you, you name it, we've got it. And because we've got contacts worldwide, we get material collections passed to us from all over the world. And a lot of the photographs in this particular book were taken by a guy who, who lives in Australia. There's no equivalent organisation in Australia to what we've set up. And so he passed his collection over to us for safekeeping and it generated an awful lot of fascinating images. He was taking colour photographs in the mid-1950s when colour film was A, expensive, B, it wasn't the standard that we would expect today, but he was able to get some lovely results. Is this Douglas uh, Beath? That's right, yes. Yes. No, he really does have some super shots, as do you in, in later years. But, yeah, Douglas Beath is also fascinating for what else he's capturing. I'm just looking at a photograph here of 1966, heading westbound at the junction of Johnston Road, Fleming Road, where I also lived, and Wan Chai Road. And in the middle of that, you've got one of the police officers standing on a, a podium, and it's quite ornate. They were such a feature of intersections in Hong Kong, and they really do look really, really pretty. And in fact, I was just looking at a photograph of a 
a similar structure. The electricity cable hanging down from overhead to power it, and around the bottom, little arrows indicating, please keep left. They're just a sort of wonderful period piece. And of course, because of the nature of traffic, and that's again one of the things you notice in photographs taken in the 50s and 60s, there are cars and buses around, but the level of traffic was much, much lighter. Yes. Um, the, the, the sheer quantity of traffic in, in Hong Kong and in most major cities today is so much higher than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Wonderful structures like that just wouldn't survive in the modern age. They'd have been flattened by a bus or a, or a truck, failing to get round them properly, unfortunately. Yes, it's interesting also to see uh, at the back, you don't only just do the Hong Kong tramway, you also do the peak tramway. Well, the peak tramway was the earliest one to be actually open on the island. It predates the main tramway by 20 years or so. Again, it's a sort of fascinating piece when it was first opened. The peak was almost completely undeveloped. It trundled up through verdant landscapes. In the 130, 140 years since it, it was completed, the whole area has been so massively redeveloped. It would almost been impossible to recognise it as the same place, other than the fact that the peak tramway still trundles its way up and down the hillside. Yes, and it, yes, and it was opened in 1888, this funicular railway. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And the phenomenal amount of tourists now that go up and down. This is such a lovely book. It's The Tramways of Hong Kong, A History in Pictures by Peter Waller, using not only his own images, but those of the online transport archive. And I can see me wanting to make many more discoveries from this brilliant archive. And you, as you say, it, the people who want to donate their photographs or people who've passed away and have collections. And, and what a great way to maintain history. But looking through again, you've also got, it's interesting to see these trams trundling by some of these very old retaining walls in Hong Kong and also many, many more neon or these, these hanging sign adverts that are beginning to really disappear from Hong Kong. Absolutely. The whole thing is designed to be an exercise in nostalgia. It's to <laughs> remind people what we've got and what we've lost and what brings back fond memories. Yes, and I think you do that very well. I mean, in some ways, I don't want to go back to some of the health issues that you would have had from that era or some of the poverty of a different sort. We still have poverty here, but it was very acute, of course, in the 50s and 60s. But I do sometimes want to be tardist back to that time just to see some of these great streets with the different forms of transport that you depict here. And now with the book, just out of interest, the online transport archive then receives money from you to use these images in this book. It, it does, yes. Mm. That's right. The archive makes its living effectively by licensing the use of images in books throughout the world. There is a worldwide interest in the subject and hopefully that will continue for, for many, many years to come. Now, also with the online transport archive, I can look at those images then. Well, the ironic thing is that we had the name online <laughs> before, before the World Wide Web was developed. The two guys that were fundamentally setting it up were both BBC producers and in video terms, what's known as online and offline editing. And so they thought online made a very good business name for a company handling production of videos. And so we get chastised because we use the name online, but we're not totally uh. online at present. But we are working towards, we've got a new website being developed literally as we speak. But that's an so enormous that, job. Absolutely. We, we don't intend to put, we've got something like two million still images in the collection, but we don't intend to put those all up on the internet because I don't think any website could actually accommodate them. No. So the idea is that we basically act as a sort of information portal. If people then say, if you have any material on X, Y and Z, then we can say yes. For example, we've got some very nice images of Shanghai in the 60s and 70s, based again around individuals who went travelling. It's all absolutely fascinating stuff. My thanks to Peter Waller, who recently produced the book The Tramways of Hong Kong, A History in Pictures, showing tram photos throughout the decades. 
The peak tram was originally intended for people living on the peak and on the stops along the way, such as Barker Road and May Road, so a way for people to get home, and was for many years a transport service for commuters. These days, the 1.4-kilometre trip takes seven to eight minutes, and the vast majority of its passengers are tourists. It's become such a popular attraction that the peak tram is now closed for three months for refurbishments to provide more shelter for the huge queues of tourists who wait at its lower terminus and also to enlarge the peak tram carriages. I understand the logistics, of course, but I hope that the character of the tram doesn't change too much. So, when did mankind have its first electric tram? When did that get invented? first electric tram line operated in Sestroretsk near St. Petersburg in Russia and was invented and tested by Fyodor Pirotsky in 1880. The second line was the Groß Lichtefelde tram line in Lichtefelde near Berlin in Germany which opened in 1881. It was built by Werner von Siemens who contacted Mr. Pirotsky. Folk's Electric Railway is a narrow-gauge heritage railway that runs along a length of the seafront of the English seaside resort of Brighton. It was built by Magnus Folk, the first section being completed in August 1883, and is the oldest operating electric railway in the world. Have a great week and thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>